So this, we've been doing a series on encounters with Jesus. We started this you know, after the resurrection. Jesus, Jesus encountered, people encountered the risen Jesus. And, and we've talked through various ones of these, and we've talked about how do these encounters shape their lives? How do they, how do they affect their faith? How do they affect their confidence? How do they affect their, their dedication? Um, what is it actually, why does this whole, why does resurrection actually matter to us? And, and uh, we're, this is the last of them today. We're going to do Saul on the road to Damascus, which occurred some years after all the others. I don't know how many, but maybe six or eight or something like that. Um, and, and we'll see how, even though at the end of it, he still arrives in Damascus, his journey is really changed. It's another one of the road stories. We've been doing road stories all through Advent. We've been doing stories of people on the road and people on traveling. And, all the, and we, you know, the, the people walking to Emmaus along with Jesus. So we're at the quote Willie Nelson. We're on the road again. Um, it's the, don't worry, we've got, you know, I'm trying to keep the song references to a minimum, but, but they're, they're going to show up. So, all right. Um, so we're on the road again. And that's what we're so that's what we're going to talk about. Now, this is the first time in in the last few months and some time that we've talked about um, Saul or Paul, the apostle Saul or Paul. And um, so I thought we might want to give. So I thought I might want to give you some background on it. Um, where did he come from? Who was he? Why did he have more than one name? Why was he going to Damascus in the first place? Uh, so just a little bit of background to, give, to, to set the stage for what happens. Um, and uh, he went on trial. We know a lot about him because he went on trial different times and he would have to give an account or that one of the churches he founded would, would challenge his authority so he would have to talk about his background. So we have a lot to draw on. I also... Um, read a book, um, I also used a book by the New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce, uh, his book, uh, Paul, Apostle of the Heart Set Free, which helped me fill in some of the sort of cultural and historical elements of this. Um, so he was born in Tarsus, probably 10 years or so after the birth of Christ, although we don't really know that. We don't know when Christ was born. We don't know when Saul was born. Um, but say 10 years. Tarsus, if you picture a map of the Mediterranean Sea, and think about the upper right corner, that's Tarsus. Although it's not actually on the sea, it's about 10 miles inland. Um, he describes it himself as a city of some significance. Um, and it, so it was. It was, a, uh, it was an ancient city, had been there for a long time. <coughs> when Alexander the Great came through and conquered that region, and... Um, he made Tarsus one of his regional capitals. So, and then his, uh, when they divided his kingdom, it continued to be a regional capital. When the Romans capital took over, it was a regional capital. So it, was a, it was a Greek city culturally because of the influence that they had had. So it was a Greek city. Saul grew up there, and he spoke Greek like a native. And we know that because at one point, he, when he's being questioned, his interrogator says, wait, you speak Greek? 
which by itself was not so surprising, but what he's really saying is, oh, you speak Greek like, like a native speaker. And so, so, so Saul spoke Greek like a native. It was a Greek city, um, cultured city, a city of some culture. But it was part of the Roman Empire. And most of the people in the Roman Empire were not Roman citizens. They were just people in the Roman Empire. Citizens had particular privileges and particular rights. And, and, and we know that, that Saul had these because he invokes them at various points. We also know that he was born with these. He was born a citizen, which means that at some point his father or his grandfather had done something for, on behalf of the empire um, that the emperor had given his family and his descendants the privileges of, of citizenship. So not only is he a place that's really cultured, his family, Saul's family, has a certain status because they're Roman citizens. Um, and that Roman citizenship is going to be important in just a minute. Okay. He was a Jew. His parents were very devout. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Benjamin was probably the smallest of the tribes, if you think of the 12 tribes. It kind of got absorbed into Judah, so that when you think of when it split into you know, the 10 northern tribes and the, 12, and the two southern tribes, you could never quite figure out who the other southern tribe was besides Judah. It was Benjamin, because it had been absorbed into Judah. Um, the most prominent member of, of the tribe of Benjamin in the Old Testament is, is King Saul, right? The first king of Israel. So they, his parents named him Saul after the first king of Israel. And they were very devout. He, he spoke Aramaic at home. Aramaic was the spoken version of Hebrew. And, and, and that, was his, that was the language of his heart, so to speak. So he was fluent in Greek. He was in a Roman city, a Roman empire, but he was, his language of his heart was Aramaic. And partly we know that because, well, we know that, but, but when Jesus speaks to him on the road to Emmaus, they, or on the road to Damascus, they speak to each other in Aramaic as opposed to any other language. So it was the language that he probably, it was his, the language of his soul, so to speak. Um, and now here's where the names come in. There were times in the Bible where God renames people. Abraham, Abram and Sarah become Abraham and Sarah. Um, Jacob is named Israel. Jesus says, you're Simon. From now on, you're going to be Peter. So, and those, name, those naming processes are important. In this case, it may not have been. Um, at least if I were going to make the case on the importance of names, I wouldn't use this as my example. Because um, it's very likely the first time that he is referred to as Paul, and it's almost an aside where, where, where he says, where in Acts 13, uh, verse 9, where Luke says, Paul, who was also known as Saul, and then he just goes on. What's happening there is that he, he and Barnabas are leaving the Aramaic and Hebrew-speaking community and moving out to the Greek-speaking communities. So it's probably a case where his parents probably gave him both the name Saul and Paul, or he adopted them as a, as a, as a 
use, just like many, many people we know and have known for, and people who have done this for centuries, when they move from one place, uh, one language to another language, and they adopt a name that's appropriate to the name and culture that they're in, uh, or familiar to the name and culture that they're in. So he may have been known as Saul and Paul his whole life, depending on whether he was in Saul, he was in a Aramaic or Hebrew community, or Paul, he was in a Greek-speaking community. He went by both names. So if there's significance to it beyond that, you know, I'd have a hard time saying that there is. Okay, now, it's possible. He also said he was a Hebrew among Hebrews. Now, this is a kind of a curious phrase, and Bruce interprets it this way. In a city the size of Tarsus, and in any city, uh, there are going to be multiple synagogues. And um, one of my friends who was Jewish, a very devout Jew, said, if you're a Jew, there's always the synagogue you don't go to. Well, the synagogue he didn't go to was probably the Greek-speaking ones. The ones he went to were the, the Hebrew-speaking ones. So when he says he's a Hebrew among Hebrews, he probably, his parents and he probably went to the more conservative Hebrew synagogues. And um, he, so he was raised in a, very, in a conservative religious family. He was a Pharisee. He became a Pharisee. He says he was the son of a Pharisee, meaning his father was a Pharisee. They were... These the Pharisees, as you know, they were devoted to serving God, to pleasing God. They studied God's word. They tried to understand how to please God, how to serve God. We think of them properly because so many of them missed the boat, spiritually speaking. We don't think of the fact that they were actually the religiously devout people. They were the ones who really wanted to do things that God required. And that was how he was raised. So, cultured, status from a Roman citizen, religiously devout. His parents sent him to Jerusalem when he was, say, 12 or 14 or something, where he was educated in Jerusalem with a man named um, Gamaliel. Now, if someone else... Uh, if you hear someone else pronounce the name differently, believe them, not me. Um, so, but, so Gamaliel, we encountered Gamaliel. He was one of the leading Pharisees and religious scholars of the, in Jerusalem at the time. And he was a man, according to Acts 5, who was held in honor by all for his wisdom. So he was, he was Saul's tutor. So he's well-educated. So all of, these, all of these things that we would think of would be, would be benefits to him. So, okay, so we've got who he is. How did he end up going to Damascus? All right, well, here's what happened. As the Christian movement grew in Jerusalem, remember, they were all Jews at this point. They were all, they were all Jews who had converted to, to what, was, what we call Christianity as followers of Christ, what they called the way. So not the Mandalorian, not that the way, you know, but they called it the way. Long before the Mandalorian, that's what they called it. All right. Um, and the, the followers of Jesus, the way, came under attack by the Jewish authorities, the high priests, the Sanhedrin, because they were a threat to them. What, the, what they were teaching, what they were doing, was considered a threat. 
it was a Roman Empire, but the Jewish high priests and the Sanhedrins had the authority to punish religious crimes. Not civil crimes, but religious crimes they did. So when Stephen, one of the early deacons in the church, what we would call the church, when he began speaking out strongly and encouraging people to follow the way, and the Jewish authorities came, came and arrested him and tried him, what they charged him with was religious crimes, speaking against the temple and the law. And that's, he gives this wonderful, great defense to say, I didn't do it, but then they stoned him. And stoning was the punishment reserved for religious crimes. So, and we know that when, that's, when Stephen was stoned, Saul was there. He was part of it. He was part of the process. In fact, what that did was that launched a wide-scale um, persecution of the, of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, what we might call um, an inquisition. And if I can have the first slide, here's the verse. Saul was the leader one of the leaders of the Inquisition against the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Chapter, Acts chapter 8. But Saul began to destroy, or was ravaging in a different translation, the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison where they would be tried. He was going house to house, and if they did not renounce Jesus, they were arrested and put in prison, and he was leading that. He was not a bystander. Okay, so, and then, so that's what's going on in Jerusalem. How did he end up going to Damascus, right? Now we can turn to beginning in Acts chapter 9, which is where our passage starts for today. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing out threats and murder, against the disciples of the Lord. Imagine that. He's, he's breathing out, somebody who's breathing out threats and murder. I don't think, you know, right? Went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. It wasn't enough that he would persecute the church in Jerusalem. He wanted to go to Damascus because once they started being persecuted in Jerusalem, the followers of Christ scattered. They went to other communities. They went to Damascus. They went to Antioch. They went to other places. And he said, Saul said, send me, to, I want to go to Damascus. I will not just volunteer. I want to head this up to go house to house again and arrest men and women. So that if he found any there who belonged to the way, men, whether men or women, he may take them to, as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul was a violent zealot. That's all you can, there's nothing, nothing you, I could find that would say this was admirable or likable. He was a violent zealot. In later life, in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 15, which is about mid, 
life, so to speak. In First Timothy, which is near the end of his life, he talks about this. You know, we're used to hearing people say, we probably say it ourselves, well, you know, I was young. I didn't really know any better. Or, well, yeah, but I fell in with a bad crowd. Or, well, you know, my heart was in the right place, but I went about it the wrong way. My motives were good, but my methods were flawed. You know, we hear people say it all the time. We maybe make those excuses for ourselves sometimes. I was in a scientific meeting once reviewing people's uh, backgrounds, and I said, you know, I think anything happened that happened in the 1970s should not be held against anybody. And if you were alive and working in the 1970s, you might understand why that was true. It was a very weird time. Uh, I, I got voted down. But we, we make these excuses for our behavior. Saul or Paul didn't do that. Here's what he said. He describes himself as the worst of all sinners. And he does it more than once. He was writing under the authority of the Holy Spirit. That's not somebody just saying, oh, how bad I am. The Holy Spirit was saying through Saul, Paul, he was the worst of all sinners. There was no one who was further from God than he was. He was the worst of all sinners. So what changed? He encountered Jesus, and he made Jesus the master of his life. Most of us here have done the same. It, it probably didn't involve being blinded by the light. Sorry, Bruce Springsteen. It, it didn't involve being blinded by the light. It didn't involve voices from heaven. It might have but it probably didn't. It probably involved parents who were dedicated followers of Christ and taught us, or maybe it involved a youth pastor or a youth leader or somebody inviting you to a meeting where you got to hear how much Christ, God loved you and you repented and, and believed Christ. There were many, 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 many paths to this encounter with Christ. And if you were to talk to the people here and talk to people in the church, you would hear many paths. This was his. But what happens after that is what matters. Next slide. And he said, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, who you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with him stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. So for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit was working in Saul's heart, but not in the hearts of his traveling companions at this time. So Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. So he, got, he arrived at his destination. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. 
What happened? What happened was it started this encounter with Jesus started the process in Saul or Paul. It was not the culmination. Sometimes I think in the church, for a variety of reasons, we, so, we focus a lot on coming to meet Jesus, the conversion experience, the evangelism. Maybe we don't talk enough about what happens next, what happens after you've met Jesus. What happens in your life then? How do you become more like him? What's the process of sanctification by which we're set aside by God to be made more like Christ? Also call, you can call it spiritual formation. You can call it discipleship where, where we become, we dedicate ourselves to becoming more like Christ but also to helping others become more like Christ. What happens? What is that process? What are some of the steps? There are many, many different directions we could take on this. But I decided that we would take this one. We're going to turn to Romans. Romans chapter 12. Oh, and what did he do during these three days? Sorry, I left this part out. So he, didn't, he was blind. He didn't eat or drink, but we know that he was praying because God spoke to a man named Ananias who said, go to this place and find him because he's been praying to me for three days. So that was the conversion, not just the blinding by the light and the voice, but the prayer he did afterwards. All my years of hearing this, I don't think I heard that part before, right? So let me turn to Romans chapter 12, and we'll talk about one step in this sanctification, spiritual formation, becoming like Christ process. All right, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. You might know this verse. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. That's Romans chapter 12, verse 2, written by Paul some years later to describe the process. The verbs here are given to us in English as a past tense, don't be conformed, but, don't, but be transformed, as if it's something that happened. But it's instead actually a, a continuing action. I went to Dan and got clarification on exactly how these work because I don't understand it. But I don't understand the Greek tenses, but that's one of many, many things I don't understand. But um, something that began in the past and continues, and it continues through all of Paul's life, it continues through all of our life. It's something that, in the way that's written, it's something that happens in us, and we are responsible for, but the, but, but the change agent is from outside us. So it's things or people outside who are, who are doing, but we're responsible for how we, we act. So two words that are important. It's all important, but two words that stand out. Do not be conformed, but be transformed. When I read a passage like this, and it says, don't be 
don't do A, but do B, it's like it's got a little sign on it that says, dig here for buried treasure. Because those are places where if you look it up and start reading other translations, look up the Greek words or something, you often find things that say, oh, wow, that's a lot more, prof there's, a, there's a lot going on in those things. So this is one of those. So let's talk about these two words. Don't be conformed. When you were a kid, did you play with Play-Doh? Even if you didn't, you probably know, remember what it was like. You know, you know, it comes in this colorful lump, and you can... You know, maybe you had a Play-Doh factory, and a Play-Doh factory where you'd have a different a little plastic things and tiles and slip them in place, and you'd push down on the lever, and it would squeeze it out into a, a circle or a square or a star or a triangle. So under pressure, it would form this shape. Now, maybe you didn't do it with Play-Doh. Maybe you've done it with cookie dough, where you've pressured it to, into a certain shape. That's this conform word. Don't be pressured to form a, to, to a particular shape. Don't be a shape shifter. Don't let those around you whoever they are, whatever the forces are around you, and they are many, 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 don't let them tell you what your ambition should be. This is what your life should look like. This is what you should aim for. This is what your goal should be. Don't let them do that. Don't let them tell you what your appetite should be. You want this. You don't want this. You want this. This is what will make you happy. Don't let them do that. Don't let them tell you what, you're, what you should approve of or not approve of. It may be good, it may not be good, but you know, let God do that. God is the one who does that, not the forces around us. This is so incredibly difficult. We think about peer pressure and we think about it with kids and teenagers and so on. I'm 70 years old. And if I actually had, if I actually thought I had peers, I don't really, but if I actually thought I had peers, there's pressure on us to be what, you know, it doesn't go away. All of our lives, we're under this pressure to conform, conform, conform. Make yourselves outwardly conforming. Make yourselves like in the things around you. It's incredibly hard to resist. But we're told to do it and continue to do it. Now, I do have sort of, if you know me, you know that, um, you probably figured out by now, that I am a dedicated nonconformist. I'm a very proud nonconformist. So when I say this is hard, it is really hard. Or, wait, I need to do one more. Everyone tells you to, Bob Dylan, everyone tells you to be just like them. There you are. There's one more. We can do a whole playlist of this. All right? I'm a, I'm a nonconformist. On the outward things, I, I, you know, I dress in clothes that don't draw attention to myself, and I wear my hair in a way that doesn't, and, you know, I look like a perfectly reasonable, normal, even likable person. Right? But you don't ever control my mind. If you recommend a book to me, I'm not going to read it. 
because I don't want you controlling my mind. I've gotten, I've gotten better about it, but it was a cake. My wife is sitting there and she could tell you exactly how long books would sit on my end table before I would read them because I didn't want that person controlling my mind, even if it was a book I wanted to read and somebody recommended it to me, I wasn't going to read it because I thought they're, they're trying to control my mind. So I'm a nonconformist. So I look at this and say, don't be conformed. I'm thinking, yeah, right on, or whatever people say nowadays, right on. I've got a life first. Don't be conformed. All right, I've got this. And then you read the second half. But be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Transformed. So what is that word? Well, that word comes from, straight from the Greek to English. We have the same word in English meaning the same thing. It's not a particularly common word in either case, but it means the same thing, and you know it. It's the word metamorphosis. But undergo a metamorphosis. Let's talk about metamorphosis. You know, I was, a, still am, a geneticist, and one of my subspecialties was developmental biology, developmental genetics, which is the process by what happens to cells as they become changed into other kinds of things. So metamorphosis is something that, from the biology side, I actually understand pretty well. All right? So let's talk, we can talk about caterpillars and butterflies, we can talk about tadpoles and frogs. Let's do caterpillars and butterflies. What happens? First off, imagine that you didn't know any biology. Imagine you don't know biology, all right? And you see a caterpillar. And you say, huh, that's an animal. That's definitely an animal. It going along the leaf and it's chewing and it's hungry. You know, there's a whole literature to hungry caterpillars. You've probably read the books. Um, and, you know, it's chewing and it's got, you know, it's good. And it's moving, you know. And, and then later on, you see this butterfly. And you say, well, that's an animal. It's an animal for sure. But you wouldn't know. And the ancients didn't realize for a long time that you were seeing the same animal at different parts of its life. You were seeing it before and after metamorphosis. And once you know, once you know the process, you know what happens. It's the caterpillar goes in and forms this cocoon, a pupa, if you want, if you're doing crossword puzzles. Um, a pupa, all right? So you may not be able to understand what happens in the because it's kind of hidden from us. And if you cut one open, it just seems like a mess, all right? And it is a mess. So what's going on? How does it metamorph how does it undergo metamorphosis from a caterpillar to a butterfly? Well, you know, a caterpillar is a pretty good animal. It eats, it digests it, it extracts the nutrients from it, it excretes what it doesn't need. That's what animals do. It moves, it has muscles, it can crawl, it can go along there. Right? It has nerves. It has a complete nervous system. They have a really elaborate nervous system, right, that can respond to things and detect things and control the muscles and so on. So what happens in that pupa, in that cocoon, 
that metamorph, what's the process by which it goes on? Well, we actually know the answer. So you may think, okay, well, it's got a mouth. The caterpillar's got a mouth. Maybe if we just took some of those cells and repositioned them, changed them a little bit, you know, now we can make a mouth that's good for, for the butterfly. It's got muscles, for crying out loud. Why don't we just take those muscles and upcycle them? The muscles used for crawling, we can upcycle them to make them the muscles used for flying. Right? Same muscles, right? It's not a, they're muscles, they're perfectly good, good muscles, they work just great. It's got a nervous system, it's got a very elaborate nervous system, right? And what if we just said, okay, wait, let's just take those nerves and we'll sort of rewire them here and there and so on and so on. And, and, huh, we've transformed a caterpillar into a butterfly. Except that's not how it works. At all. And I'm going to suggest that how it works in biology is similar to how it works in our lives. It's not that things get remodeled. It's not that things get repositioned. It's not like we can upcycle old stuff. I'm quite sure that Paul wasn't thinking about caterpillars and butterflies when he wrote Metamorphosis. I'm quite sure that the people who studied, I know the people who studied Metamorphosis were not thinking about Romans 12. So it's a parallel, but it does break down at certain points. But here's the process. In that cocoon, 90% of those cells die. They don't get reused at all. There's a few pockets of cells that in the caterpillar don't form anything. But once it goes into the, into the cocoon, those cells begin to divide. And this pocket makes the forewing, and this pocket makes the hindwing. And this pocket makes the mouth parts, completely new mouth parts. This pocket begins to form the muscles, new muscles. They don't reuse the muscles. This pocket begins to make nerves, and they make new nerves, connected in different ways. It's similar in frogs, in tadpoles and frogs, not quite as extreme, not 90%, but it's the same process. It involves a massive amount of cell death. Sometimes we think, well, you know, I'm a Christian. I can just sort of remodel my life. I can remodel my motives. I can remodel my opinions. I can remodel my, my thought processes. I can remodel these things. And that's not metamorphosis. In metamorphosis, all those things had to die. And all of them have to die. So we're in this constant process of things dying and being renewed. And if we don't have it, you can do the experiment. Well, the experiment could be done by people in the lab where they keep some of those nerves from dying. They say, well, what happens? You can guess. It can't hatch. It can't survive. It, it can't live with some nerves from the caterpillar and some nerves from the, from the butterfly. You can't. All the old ones have to die, the new ones have to form. 
Is that true for us? Well, look back at verse. So if we can go to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, the verse before this one. I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Living sacrifice is an oxymoron. How can it, something as sacrificed dies? That's how it worked. The animals that were sacrificed, it wasn't like, it was, okay, well, we'll take out the spleen because it doesn't really need a spleen and we'll sacrifice that. No, the whole animal died. How can it be a living sacrifice? That's what our lives are. In the process of things dying and, and coming back. Dying and coming back. Dying to the old ways, coming back for what God is doing and what the Holy Spirit and God is doing in our lives. Or keep, I can keep going. It's a process of continual sacrifice. Lest you think it's just a couple of verses, consider this. You know these verses. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Death and regeneration. Metamorphosis. Or this, Colossians 3. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died. Right? And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. But it's a complicated dynamic because you died, we died. But therefore we have to put to death. So it's the both and. Things died with continually putting them to death. So a time when our old nature died, that's what happened in Paul during that confrontation on the road to Damascus and then his prayer afterwards. That old nature was dying and then the rest of his life was, was being reborn, regenerated out of the pieces. That's what happens in us. And if we try to do something different, it doesn't work. If we try to imagine it's just sort of upcycling old things, it's not going to work. We're never going to get to the full end point. So, okay. So this analogy of caterpillar metamorphosis and, and our lives metamorphosis, it works really well, and it's, but, but it also breaks down at certain points. There are a couple places it breaks down. It breaks down because when you look as an outside observer at the caterpillar and the butterfly, you don't actually see the process of metamorphosis. You see the before, and you see the after, but you don't see the process. It's hidden from you. In our spiritual lives, most of what we see when we look at each other is the metamorphosis. Most of our lives that we're looking at, when I look at you, what I'm seeing is that pupa of living and de dead things. That's most of our lives, is that that process that's actually hidden to the outside observer. And even to us sometimes, as the one who happens to, it's kind of, it can be a mess. It's a mess. But that's what's happening. 
Second, maybe more importantly, caterpillars don't have an eschatology. They have no sense of their future. They have no understanding of what's going to happen next. They don't understand that they're destined for something else. They don't have eschatology. We do. We know that this life is not our end point. Matt talked about this. We're going to have a glorified body. We have a sure hope that all of this process of dying to self, sometimes it causes grief, sometimes it causes confusion, sometimes it's a struggle. All this process of dying to self and being re reborn, all of this metamorphosis, it's going to be worth it because we know what our end point is, that we will be glorified. I'm not a caterpillar anymore. I'm not yet a butterfly. And very likely I'll turn out to be a cabbage moth, one of those little white fluttery things. Right? I'd like to think I'm going to be a monarch or something. Eh, probably not. Probably I'm going to be a cabbage moth. But it's okay because I'm not there yet. And I, and I have an understanding, and you have an understanding, of this is our life. It's going to be a life of metamorphosis, but it is worth it because of what God is doing. So let me pray, and we can wrap up. Sorry that I went so long. Lord, it is a... Even as I talk, I think of all the things that still need to die. All the places where the things I approve or don't approve, or the appetites, the things I think I need, the ambitions, that I think I, things I should work for, they all need to die. And have you regenerate them? Have you metamorphosize them? Lord, keep us from trying to just remodel and, and trust you to do the metamorphosis that needs to happen. In the name of Christ, amen.